Državljan D. Podcast za aktivne državljane. Welcome everybody. It's the 14th of November 2022, but you're listening to this podcast on the 15th of November. So <laughs> we're cutting it really close. Uh, this is Citizen D and uh, with us today is a journalist, Michael Colburn, who focuses on the transnational far right and leads Bellingcat Monitoring, Bellingcat's project to research and monitor the, fire, the far right in Central and Eastern Europe. Welcome, Michael. Oh, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for, uh, it, thanks for the invite, Domen. <laughs> it's, it's always uh, nice to hang out with you discussing neo-Nazis. <laughs> yeah, as, as, as you know, and as uh, people who also know me, also, as they know, it's something, it's something I, am, I am prone to talking about. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> and and, and, and let's, let's, uh, let's start with, with the basics. So uh, recently in, in the years, let's say, following the, the Trump election in, in the US, I could say there was or there, there is an uptick of, of extreme right movements all across mm-hmm. the EU, all across the US and, and other countries. At the same time, it seems that there are many different terms that are basically describing the same thing. So mm-hmm. when we were prepping for this podcast, you've mentioned that, you know, alt-right is sort of not being used anymore. Then you have right. the new right, the classical neo-Nazis. So what's the, what's the difference? What's, uh, what's the terminology that is being used, uh, that is being used uh, in, in, let's say, the current, the current state of affairs? It, it's it's always a fun game with with terminology when it comes to the far right because I mean, on the one hand you've got uh, researchers journalists academic scholars who you know have have terms and definitions for for different reasons about different t- types of groups and individuals on the far right but then you have these groups and individuals who oftentimes don't uh, don't accept those labels as a descriptor for them they they sometimes they do sometimes they don't and then you can have the issue of uh you know when some of these terms being used across across languages i mean in the in the Ang- english language context alone it's you know there there can uh, there can be a, a ton of uh differences in in debates around the you know the definitions that are used for some groups or some movements or individuals or ideologies but then when we're when when those terms are being used across different languages like obviously in Slovenian and and other languages in the region and across Europe and beyond then it becomes even more difficult and especially taken into consideration like more local or regional linguistic contexts like for example mm. in a lot of i would say you know the english language world if we want to call it the anglo-american sphere you know where i'm from canada so that's obviously the world where i am from you know you can use somebody to describe somebody on the far right there are plenty of terms you can use other than you know nazi or neo-nazi but across other languages and i mean i, I had this conversation last year with somebody about the use of the term you know nazi or neo-nazi in russian and ukrainian and we're having this discussion around okay well there's you know you're not call you know you're not calling it was it was you speaking to me and saying like you're not calling (laughs) 
this specific group or individuals, Nazis or neo-Nazis, are using terms like far-right or far-right extremist or neo-fascist, but it was in a Russian language context. And, and the person said to me, like, yeah, those are all the right terms, but in Russian, you pretty much to get anybody's attention, you have to use a word like a, a word like Nazi. But that's mm. just the one example in terms of you know, using a term like alt-right, which as I understand it is a, a term, you know, still kind of used in the Slovenian context. And maybe it's it's a word that, you know, comes up in 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 discussion or casual discussion. But I mean, strictly in terms of like the alt-right that came out of the United States and, you know, was part of the trolling and sphere in the world that, uh, you know, helped push uh, Donald Trump into the White House in 2016, that specific alt-right movement has since died off, maybe died off over relatively quickly. And it was the uh, August 2017 in Charlottesville that kind of killed off some of those, um, you know, groups and, and individuals, some people like Richard Spencer and other others who were considered, you know, the, the darlings of the quote-unquote alt-right, their fortunes fall fell by the wayside. So especially in an American context, using a term like alt-right is already kind of passe. Now, mm -hmm. it doesn't mean it's wrong necessarily to use that when we're using it as a shorthand to to, you know, to talk about things that are going on in another country. But if you if you talk to if you if you don't want to talk to somebody from the US and, you know, maybe mention the term alt-right to some colleagues who I know are researchers in the US, they might be a little confused at first. Like what, what are you talking about? And then we, you know, you, you get down to the nitty-gritty of of the kind of groups that you mean. One of the mm -hmm. things that we you talk we talk about in uh the, the trainings that we do at Bellingcat in, in terms of some of the stuff that we talk talk about specifically when it comes to the far right is you know, how many of different kinds of terms or words or descriptors that there are and we don't need to get into a list of all of them because that'll be a, a an entire like course basically mm -hmm. um but you have terms like neo-nazi neo-fascist identitarian uh the just the difference between extreme right and radical right, which is something that I ascribe to essentially the, you know, the extreme right are more, you know, more into, uh, more into violence, more into extra parliamentary politics, not so much interested in, 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 you know, being, being sort of political parties trying to gain as many votes as possible. But then the mm -hmm. radical right is probably more seen as, the the parties that people have heard of across Europe, AFD, mm -hmm. uh, you know, par parties like that, the Front National or whatever they're called, the National Rally in France, and of course those aren't hard and fast um, places. You know, it's not like you you look at a list of of parties or movements and say, oh, they are just extreme right. Oh, they are just radical right. Mm -hmm. There's there is overlap between between both of those. And then within those, you know, are we talking about radical right populists? Are we talking about neo-fascists? Are we talking about esoteric Hitlerism? You know, which is uh people if, if people don't know what that is, uh I I would stay not knowing what it is it's, it's better for you <laughs> but what what but I, I think the overarching point that i'd make in terms of terminology is that 
sometimes there is a there is a need to be precise with terminology, but particularly if you're going to use the term Nazi or neo-Nazi, mm-hmm. then then you better be precise. Mm-hmm. When it comes to other other terms related to the far right, there's there's more room for debate in terms of like, oh, is this more far right extremist? Is this radical right? Do I even accept those terms? So that's that's another thing that makes it difficult and fun writing about the far right broadly conceived internationally because people across different languages as well might have different understandings of what different terms mean. Mm. But but for a sake of a let's say a more wider public discussion about these movements about mm-hmm. their goals are they like all fitting under the same umbrella is it you know are they are they mainly concerned about the same things or focused on on the same goals or is there like a division of let's say labor and focuses and i guess ideologies between them as well I, I would say they they actually fit under the same very large of overarching umbrella. Mm. They are people who are on on the far right again, whether they're you know radical right political parties who claim to not be right wing at all, versus you know outright neo Nazis and the things that they say. Mm-hmm. What they all have in common is this belief or. or beliefs in in hierarchy a belief that their nation sometimes capital in nation is under some sort of existential threat by an outsider they are opposed to liberal democracy in varying ways of course a, a more radical right party is going to take part in elections it's going to pay lip service to democracy it's going to take part in parliamentary procedure and things like that but there are still key elements of liberal democracy like uh, minority rights that they are going to not just criticize but try to take down but then you go to the extreme right and they're they're not subtle about it they are just explicitly anti-democratic believe in natural leaders believe in you know sometimes supremacy or superior superiority of different races or 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 ethnic groups so mm-hmm. what's interesting is that i would say yes some of these some of these groups individuals ideological tendencies on the far right they do they 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 certainly sometimes will profess different things for example some will on on the extreme right will openly take part in violence or encourage violence while those who are you know more on the radical right and more involved towards the mainstream aren't necessarily going to directly advocate or call for that sort of thing but when you strip down the the core of what they believe in we're talking about a lot of the same things belief in hierarchy order authority uh, a, a fear of loss and a need to rejuvenate the nation or save the nation from all sorts of external and uh and internal threats so mm. so they it, you know talking if you talk to some of these parties on on the radical right they certainly would uh you know not just downplay but they deny quite vociferously i think that they'd have any connection with with anything on the more extreme far right mm-hmm. but uh, in you know depending on the type of party they they will pretend to push some of those kinds of figures away while 
bringing them in with the other and sometimes just being a more a more polite and sanitized version of the, of the more extremes on the far right. Mm -hmm. So moving on to, to your work in this area, mm -hmm. so you've dedicated at least a part of your professional life to investigating these movements within the Central and Eastern Europe. Yeah. And first off, why Central and Eastern Europe? What so is this like a like a bubble or like a like a coherent space where you could actually like see the connections between let's say countries or or areas or did you just chose this out of love for food and <laughs> alcoholic <laughs> beverages you know what there's there's a few different reasons one of them is that i think the you know what the primary reason to focus on at least with this part of our work over the past uh, past few years on Central and Eastern Europe, uh, we're focusing on those countries. And by Central and Eastern Europe, I'm, what we, we're essentially referring to post-communist or post-socialist countries. Mm -hmm. Now, across that very wide spectrum of countries, there are considerable differences and lumping every single, you know, 20 plus countries in the region together solely on the basis of them sharing some communist or socialist past is, you know, overstating it to put it mildly. But mm. what, what I, what became apparent to me as somebody who was researching the far, but also somebody who was working as a journalist in Eastern, in Eastern Europe, Central and Eastern Europe, especially in the West, Western Balkans and especially in Ukraine, I saw that, even though in say Western Europe and in, in, you know, the Anglo-American world, Canada, the United States, Australia, places like that, there's a very, very well developed, you know, scholarly and research. Uh, th there's a very firm and strong knowledge base about the far right in Western Europe and in the country. Mm -hmm in the West, whatever the West is. I hate mm. using that as a term because I think it's so, uh, so, so malleable, but, um, but what became apparent to me working across, uh, you know, some disparate countries in Central and Eastern Europe was that the, the way the far right operated in some of these countries was not well understood, not just outside those countries, but between some of these countries. And it became apparent to me that the way that we sometimes understand the far right in Western Europe or in the United States, it, because of the difference differences in history, both recent and, and 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 further back, and just considerable political and sociological differences, you can't just take the same the same models, the same frames from Western Europe and plop them down into a country in Eastern Europe and expect to be able to make sense of them. There are, there are things that happen across Central and Eastern Europe still 30, 35 years later because of the legacy of the fall of communism and socialism. Mm -hmm. there, are com there are some commonalities that, you know, that exist in a way that they don't in Western Europe that don't have those same histories. And I think that was something that I really wanted to dig into a bit more and try to uh, elevate, uh, especially in an English language context, elevate some of that understanding, you know, a bit more broadly. And also because the, the far right in Western Europe, especially the, the more 
explicit extremes of the far right, they they are networking with movements, individuals, groups, parties in Central and Eastern Europe pretty extensively. You know, mm-hmm. We only have to look at Hungary as you know, probably the, the most prominent example of, especially now, uh, American Republicans kind of falling in love, not with Hungary, but Orban's specific uh, version of Hungary and the kind of Hungary that he he oversees. Mm-hmm. And with there's there is the, this cross pollination that goes on between some countries in Central and Eastern Europe and Western Europe and, and even around the world. So it, that's another reason why it's especially important to pay attention to sometimes what goes on in pretty small countries. That's part part of the reason why earlier this year, obviously I wrote about Slovenia because mm-hmm. I thought, you know, I am certainly no expert on Slovenia and Slovenian politics, let alone language, but uh, mm-hmm. it became very apparent to me from research speaking to people like yourself, that there were trends going on and still are going on in the country that people from other countries that get more media attention or bigger countries, shall we say, essentially they're going to be copycats of what goes on in Slovenia, what goes on in Hungary, what goes on in Poland. And if people who, you know, people in, uh, in Western Europe don't, if they don't take the time to understand some of the reasons, the differences, the details of what goes on in, in Central and Eastern Europe, well, there's, there's a lot that we're all going to be missing out on. Mm -hmm. And, and, and did you find, let's say some, some commonalities in terms of uh, when analyzing, let's say Eastern and, and, and Central Europe, Europe space, did you find any commonalities in terms of let's say the the neo-nazi origin story like what mm-hmm. what were some of the drivers that that maybe link uh, all of these countries or right. or encourage uh, encourage the, the 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 uprise in in far right movements right. in this area i think i think something that contributes to a lot of the far right and especially far right extremists across different countries in the region are again something that it it comes down to differences in history and it particularly comes down to uh, issues around national identity. Again, Mm. for somebody from the United States, from Canada, from most countries in Western Europe, we don't have, and I mean, we as, you know, somebody who is from the place that I am, we don't have the same sort of cultural experience or we don't have this sense in our histories of being small, relatively small nations that are that have seldom been independent and are under the thumb of of larger empires mm-hmm. or part or just basically not not independent countries. So when I mean the, the it across across the region, whether it's a place like Slovenia or, or Slovakia, um, you know, other countries in the former Yugoslavia, Poland, Ukraine, as well. In so many of these countries, the especially after the fall of communism, so much of the, you know, so much of what drove political discussion and politics after the fall of communism was 
in attempts attempts to build or rebuild a national identity and that sometimes came with uh you know it, it sometimes came with a very healthy dose of anti-communism especially in cases where uh communist socialist uh you know regi- regimes uh you know basically oppressed any any national movement i think ukraine is a pretty prescient example of that and if there's a commonality between a lot of these countries across Central and Eastern Europe, it's that when it comes to, if, if your country is, if, if it seems like its overarching primary goal is to become independent, protect its independence, protect its nationality and culture, and not only that, essentially try to catch up with the West. I'm very much using inverted commas there, or join the West, join the European Union as, you know, as a sort of cultural marker. I think if an entire country's politics and society are geared around that, the more extreme elements of that, like, you know, neo-Nazis or, you know, far-right extremists who draw on the, the legacies, the symbolism and the ideologies of, movements that collaborated with Nazi Germany. I think in a lot of these countries, people like that don't get or haven't received as much critical scrutiny as, you know, as, as you might see in, in Western Europe or in other places. In other words, Hmm. an environment where sometimes the more extreme elements are treated as other, they'll, they'll grow out of that or, or they're they're just fringes. They don't really mean it. Or, yeah, they do this stupid. You know, they have their stupid swastikas and their stuff like that. But, uh, you know, at the core, they're they're good guys. Or, in in a lot of cases, not wanting to actually bring that much attention to some of those kinds of actors because it makes the country look bad. You, know, mm. you don't want, you know, for, like for example, in um, obviously an issue. In, in Ukraine is talking about the far right and not wanting to feed into Russian propaganda or, mm-hmm. you know, the, in, in Croatia, not wanting to, you know, people there not wanting to feed into Serbian propaganda about everybody being Ustasha or whatever. So mm-hmm. that, that, that all those factors come together. They sometimes can create an environment where somebody like me, who is from a very different cultural and political context, or I can go to a country and this is not the case across every Central and Eastern European country, but where I can go to some of these countries and see much more, you know, tacit acceptance of Nazi symbols or Nazi graffiti or people just not, people not taking some of these figures on the far right seriously or just not wanting to talk about it because they don't want to hurt hurt the country. So mm-hmm. It's, it's a pretty roundabout explanation of something that could be a book unto itself <laughs> and probably still a lot of threads to pull on there, but I hope that, you know, made some sense of, of mm-hmm. how I think about and how I approach the mm. region very broadly or regions within the region. Mm. No, no. It, I mean, it makes, it makes some sense, I guess, because as, as we were talking on, on your mm. visit to, to Slovenia, I, I, I found it like, hard to sort of pinpoint on specific issues that are or that were causing that were causing an, uh, 
let's say an increased interest or increased mm -hmm. visibility of these groups like so in Slovenia looking at reporting done by Eric Valencic, Anush Kadelic mm -hmm. and, and other reporters who who have been at it for 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 decades literally you yeah. could see that that the show went on after the after the literally after the the second world war right it it never stopped yeah. it just went a bit underground and then it surfaced again underground surfaced yeah. again underground and so on but uh, focusing on on your on your investigations how do you or what would you say is is the biggest let's say value of the things that you've do so a lot of times reporting on these groups even let's say from from my examples you hear like the same excuses or you hear the same let's say non-arguments in terms of oh right. why do you bother with these assholes you know this is just something that you know is 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 on the fringe you're giving them visibility you're giving them context this is not you're just making them more popular right, right. We should just you know leave them be and they'll die they'll die on on their own do, do you like share the the notion or as i said before do you do you see what do you see as your greatest let's say uh, uh, value of 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 the work that you do there's your your questions making me think of two things and i'll i'll start with this one first talking about you know that that sort of argument i mean because obviously i i've i i hear that whether directly or not you know that same kind of argument thrown at me like okay why why are you writing about this group or individual who cares they're just you know this is just some you know some telegram group run but run by a few fringe weirdos or you know these guys got two percent in the last election who mm -hmm. cares and yes there is very there is clearly you know an ethical question that we do think about because again we talk about it in our trainings in terms of covering the far right is a one of the the questions that that we ask ourselves is okay if writing writing about this specific group or individual or movement am i helping them by doing this am i giving them too much attention than what they're worth or what's the public interest in doing so and mm -hmm. that, that is something that i always take into consideration for anything that i do or end up not doing there's you know i'm not i won't name a country but there's you know there's one sort of fringe uh you know far right or neo-fascist group in a you know in a Balkan country that I'm, I've been interested in for, you know, a year and a half or more. I just find, for various reasons, find them fascinating, including some of their, you know, ideological inspirations, their arguments, their connections. But over that same year and a half, talking to other people, I've realized, no, that writing about this group or this movement would actually benefit them. So mm. I don't do it. But in terms but in terms of that sort of overarching argument that you hear, you hear it everywhere. You you'd, you hear it. You would hear it in Slovenia, hear it in Western Europe, and you hear it in the United States and Canada as well. Like who who cares about these far right extremist guys posting on Telegram and wearing skull masks and talking about doing combat sports training, all that kind of thing? They're just you know they're just losers. And when when you ask that question, I fortunately I'm in in front of my computer, and <laughs> I pulled up a quote. Uh, from a far right extremist who I'm not going to name, just to just to deny them the oxygen of of their name being mentioned, and they said something in a podcast uh, 
last week in, in English. And this was, it was really a case of somebody saying the quiet part out loud. And I heard this quote and I transcribed it almost in full because it just struck me as somebody saying exactly what everybody else thinks on those fringes of the far right. So the quote is this. I think people get really confused about the point of street activism. The point of it is to normalize it. The point of it is to make fascism and nationalism something that you see while you're walking to go get a friggin' cup of coffee. It's to make it normal. It's to no and that's the end of the quote. It's but basically it's to normalize things. And then later on, this uh, <laughs> unnamed individual says something about specifically, uh, you know, look, you know, trying to re recruit or get their message out to teenagers. And this individual talks about a young kid and quote unquote, when he does get introduced to ideas, to our ideas, to him, maybe it's not going to be so crazy anymore. You know, when you start talking about Jews or something, maybe it won't seem far out. Or maybe if you start talking about white pride, it won't be this crazy, ridiculous topic because he's seen it written on the streets everywhere. Mm. When this person said all this stuff, I was just amazed because it's a... Uh, was just saying out loud this is why you know th this is what this is what we're trying to do we're slowly trying to make these ideas and not just ideas but these symbols normal mm -hmm. and that's why things as things as what seem relatively trivial as graffiti matter that's why things like you know, the far right putting up stickers mm -hmm. that's why those things matter as well like you know i in in central ljubljana there's you know from my time there uh a few months ago you know, there's, there's not as many, you know, far right stickers and graffiti as I've seen in other countries, but there's certainly some. And I would not recommend anybody, no matter where they are in the world, no matter whether they have a lot of this kind of graffiti, or they have barely any of it. You know, if, if you let, you know, if you play into play into what these fringes want, which is Oh, these are these are just idiots. Who cares about a, a Celtic cross? Who cares about you know whatever a swastika here or there? I mean, those things happen. Blah blah blah. Somebody thinking stuff like that, mm. and then you read you hear a quote like this, and they you get, again like they say the quiet part out loud. They're just saying this is exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to slowly normalize these things, and it's actually relates. This is a quote from another related quote. I'm thinking of it because it's it's right below this one in my notes. If you can mm. hear my mouse wheel scrolling, that's what it is. <laughs> um, this is actually from a far right group from uh, my home province, actually, in Canada. Mm. Um, I'm going to paraphrase most of the quote here. If, you know, mainstream civic nationalists or mainstream right wingers are repeating your talking points, then you're no longer pushing the envelope and it's time to adjust your rhetoric. Basically know your place in the pipeline and understand your responsibility to those downstream of you. You can't advance our worldview or our objectives if you're still repeating points from five years ago. They're explicitly mm. talking about trying to push some of these things into the mainstream or put themselves into positions where more mainstream actors reach in and pull some of these kinds of points, you know, mm. things like the great replacement or mm. other, other sorts of terms or specific authors or publishing houses or symbols, making them more normal over time. Mm. So sure. Do you want, do you need to give attention to every single fringe actor? Heck no. 
you know, there's, there's a lot that, that I don't focus on for some of the reasons I said a few minutes ago, because it, I, and my ethical calculation, our ethical calculation, frankly, because it's, it's not just me doing this. Um, mm. We, you know, think about, okay, if the, you know, if you're a nerd about writing about these kinds of topics, you know, some of, some of them might be interesting to you on their own and you may want to write about it. But if you write about it, and especially if you have a kind of platform that Bellingcat does, then they might see that almost as a badge of honor and it might help them. And mm. that to me is something to avoid altogether. But the flip side is, you know, if, if what, what I would say back to anybody who wants to say, you know, why are you focusing on these fringe actors? you know, they're not important enough. The counterpoint I'd make is, well, when do they become important enough? Mm. When's, when, when is enough percentage of, when is a big enough percentage of the vote for me to start considering them significant? Like, oh, you say two or 3% isn't significant and they can't get into whatever country's parliament. Okay, but if they get five or 6%, you know, and they have mm. a few MPs, Mm -hmm. Or are you going to argue that they're still fringe there because the same argument would apply or, you know, yeah, let's, I mean, let's, let's further this discussion into, yeah. into exactly this, this part of this part of, uh, of uh, the debate. So the, the political impact, right? Yeah. Right now in, you have the, the European parliament that, that has like actual neo-Nazis representing oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and there's a lot of different like local political groups, maybe not necessarily, or maybe in, in some countries you'll 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 be the expert of that, but but looking at, at Slovenia, you have several, let's say, political entities, political parties, uh, 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 visible politicians, yeah, uh, like sharing you know, uh, neo-Nazi conspiracy theories. You have right. a few of them furthering this uh, these ideas about the great replacement and yeah. and uh, and other nationalistic threats and i i would just like to i would just like to like hear your thoughts on on this political aspect so obviously this benefits these groups right but right. what's the what's the the other side of the coin for politicians that are you know Toying with these concepts and are and are sort of attaching them to to their to their political platform. Mm -hmm. Is there like political money in this, or is this just something that? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think across different countries and and political parties, and maybe you know even indivi on individual levels, mm -hmm. I think the motivation for say almost reaching out to the far right and bringing the far right in or co-opting them or trying mm -hmm. to co-opt them. I think sometimes it's down to basically to some extent, maybe not competition isn't the right word, but basically seeing, you know, seeing what somebody further right than you is doing and seeing, seeing the interest that it might generate from people that you, whose votes or support you might want, or if you see somebody on the far right do something, if they, because often as the far right does, communicates relatively well, aesthetically very well, you know, manages to generate media attention. And if you're a particularly cynical politician or political actor, then that's something you want to get in on. You want to get in on that. Uh, you know, you, you don't you don't want to fall behind the curve and you know be uh, be pushed out of the political market by these 
by these upstart kids, you know, mm. but on the other hand, uh, related, not on the other hand, relatedly, I think is especially for some mainstream right-wing actors. I don't, I don't want to, you know, tar them all with the same brush. I think it's very clear that there are individuals across all sorts of different countries, including my own, you know, people who have presented themselves as, you know, right-wing, maybe hard-right politicians, but not maybe far-right, or then they certainly wouldn't call themselves that. But then now all of a sudden they see some sort of, not just because they see some sort of potential, but you realize that they actually have ideological affinities with the far-right more so than than we might have realized before. So I think in a lot of cases, it's expedience, cynical expedience, maybe sometimes even... uh, you know, bringing, bringing a, a potential, seeing a potential threat and kind of a, almost like buying out their political space. Like look at uh, Hungary with Fidesz and I guess the former far-right party, Jobbik. You know, mm-hmm. Fidesz essentially moved further right and swallowed up all of Jobbik's vote to the point where Jobbik tried to become a sort of mainstream conservative party to the relative left of Fidesz, which didn't mm-hmm. work for them. Mm. And I think I think Orban is probably the best or well, best and worst example, depending on depending on your, you know, how you're looking at this, you know, example of somebody who's, you know, clearly is very right wing in their own beliefs, is interested in uh, you know, completely owning the political marketplace, so to speak. And if there's a threat on on the right flank to to kind of swallow that up i think you see you know i think yeah hungary is probably the best example of that and i think other politicians may have tried you know less successfully but for for some of the you know the the far-right fringe extremists you know like some of the ones we've you know i've written about in slovenia and we've talked about getting getting a hand up from you know being treated as a as a legitimate political actor by a mainstream political party is you know, something I think a lot of people on the far right wish they had. Look what mm. happens to far right extremists in the U.S. when prominent Republicans or somebody like Tucker Carlson, you know, defends them on TV. All of a sudden, there is a degree of legitimacy there with a significant part of the population. Certainly not all, of course. But, you know, if you've got, uh, you know, you're, uh, let, let's say you're, uh, you know, you're a, a a, 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 an un, un, unnamed country in Central and Eastern Europe, maybe <laughs> you know, a few million people. You're you're a center, nominally center right political party with your own website and other, and trying to build up your own media world. And you decide <laughs> to give platforms to outright far right extremists and to talk about the Great Replacement and promote neo Nazi publishers. I mean, that's that's a heck of a hand up for slovenia i mean okay it's pretty obvious what country i'm talking about but yeah <laughs> spoilers but yes but, spo- but, spoiler alert slovenia. <laughs> but is but is so so uh, could you say that that is basically so so they're damned if they do and damned if they don't in terms of these neo-nazi groups so if they damned if they don't achieve enough popularity to sort of i'm not going to say I'm not going to say sway the public vote, but sort of be a, be an influence in a, in a public discussion. And at the same time, they're damned if they do, because then they're going to get eaten up by, let's say, center-right parties, which will, yeah. you know, use this to sort of to sort of further their reach or to to 
yeah extend extend its reach uh, onto the onto the yeah fringe of yeah of, I think let's say, the, the depending right. on the yeah, that's a good way to put it I think depending on the type of party or politician or the political context that some of them are operating them in you know they they probably do see themselves a bit as damned if they do damned if they don't for exactly that reason because they're worried about being squeezed out of of the political and, and ideological marketplace they don't mm. they don't want to fall behind the curve but they don't want to concede ground to anybody on their perceived left or their perceived right mm. so yeah i think that that is and it comes down to as well the identity that say a party or a politician has whether they're you know more interested in and i think you you see this from you know different elements within the same party you know and you don't just see it i think with the far right but you might see it as well with you know anti-vax fringes that are you know invariably leaning towards the far right as well i mean this is something we see in canada with the conservative party which i would say fortunately is not nearly as you know it, it's not a party that verges to the far right in the same way that a lot of other parties unfortunately are doing across the world right now but there are certainly elements within that party who kind of you know have danced with some of danced with the far right basically but there are many elements that push back against that because there's a bit of an identity of not being those kind of extremist weirdos mm -hmm. but that's mm -hmm. that's a situation where you know because of the way canada works and the way that politics and voting works th there's smarter smarter heads are prevailing I, I like to think and you know prevail within that particular center right right-wing party that they realize oh we can't we can't become like those extremist trucker convoy anti-vax you know far right weirdos we need to be you know we need to be mainstream because we'll never get votes that way mm -hmm. and that's obviously not the situation everywhere and it, and like I, like i was saying i think it also depends on the kind of character of the leader the the politicians within that party i think in some cases especially some countries in central eastern europe they really see themselves or think that they are the only defenders or the saviors of the nation without mm -hmm. us you know without us the country will collapse from both our external and internal enemies and mm -hmm. that probably sounds familiar to you mm. yeah I, because because th that would be my next question right you 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 already talked about the others right so about yeah. this let's say the let's call it the supporting system that basically uh encompasses these let's say far right figures mm -hmm. and and media outlets that are that are promoting uh, this this stance what would you say is it's sort of i mean what would you say is the role of this supporting system in terms of negating or encouraging the the spread and influence of of the yeah the the extreme right uh, movement and ideology and theories mm -hmm. and whatever do does it have like a like a role to play or is this just something that you know happens and nobody can do anything about it oh i think i think it's it's definitely more the former it's a case where you know, across west east north south wherever mm -hmm. where 
you know where the the where where the far right is more successful or sees itself as more successful, whether electorally, whether just in terms of extremists gaining more of a presence, profile, activities, whatever. Mm-hmm. It comes down to whether you know whether a society, whether whether a country, whether it's its leaders, its cultural, societal, you know opinion leaders mm-hmm. are willing to put a, put up a red line or a cordon sanitaire around, you know, or, or, you know, this is, this is the line, this is the anti-democratic far right line that should not be crossed. And mm-hmm. I, I think what we really see, and, you know, especially in the past few years is that line being pushed and pushed, sometimes dragged over further right by the far right, sometimes being pushed over, or sometimes just seeming to be erased or not being there at all. I think there's, there's I don't think there's anything inevitable about the rise of, you know, the rise of the far right in, in various countries, East and West. Mm-hmm. I don't think, and I, 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 there's nothing inevitable, inevitable also about, you know, rising and falling fortunes of, of far right actors, of ideologies, of, uh, you know, of things like that. Mm-hmm. But it, what's key to both, to, you know, what's been key for, you know, to protecting liberal democracy is having, having a red line and not, not letting it be crossed or pushing back when it's, when, it, when it's, pushed more you know pushing back when it's pushed upon basically Mm. and i think places where you've seen the far right be be more successful are places where over time that line has slowly been pushed the wrong way or eroded or stretched or you know maybe not so much a red line but a you know whatever however more more i can carry the metaphor to death here you know whether it's <laughs> whether it's a little bit erased on the ground or gone to orange and sometimes it's okay to cross it <laughs> the more you know the key is to stand firm on whatever wherever you decide those red lines and those that cordon sanitaire is mm-hmm. and not do and not let the far right push it because like mm-hmm. the quote i gave from the uh you know, unnamed far-right extremist, they are just, they're going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. Mm -hmm. And if you give, uh, you know, if you give the far-right an inch, they'll take a mile from you because that's just how they work. You let them in. Mm -hmm. You say, oh, we're going to, we're going to, we said, yeah, five years ago, we said these guys were a bunch of extremists, but now we're going to work with them because we we need to, or they've reformed now, they've changed their name and, uh, you know, they they wear suits and ties now. Mm. Yeah, that's yeah. The key basically is to, you know, wherever a particular or wherever a society, you know, parts of a society, political opinion leaders, activists, journalists, researchers, whoever, mm-hmm. where they decide that line is. And I mean, I have part of what guides the research that I do, the journalism that I do, is I see a lot of those lines. My when I th- my ethical or moral lines being crossed. And I feel it's my duty in my own way as a journalist, as a researcher to push back against it in my own way. Mm-hmm. And and if things weren't, you know, complicated enough, you have the, the invasion of, of Ukraine. Uh, yes. <laughs> where, 
neo-nazis played at least part in in the narrative right so yeah. so putin was against or putin was focused on the denazification then you yes. have the the azov movement so is there a sense to be made uh, from all this happening in ukraine connected with with nazis and neo-nazi movements or is this just something that i'm not going to say is is too complex to unpack but it's basically yeah layer upon layer upon layer of of different ideologies historical yes. lines it, and it, yeah unfortunately yeah the answer <laughs> the, the answer is exceedingly complex mm. it, it really is but i think one thing that's important to to talk about and to stress is the extent to which or the extent to which there haven't the the, the way that um the invasion of ukraine has not galvanized the international far right i think a lot of people when the invasion kicked off because i remember actually in the having this discussion with people in you know late february and early march when obviously the invasion happened and an, an invasion that was so insane and you know bloody and, and intense that most of us myself included didn't expect anything on that scale the reason we didn't is because it, we thought it's not going to work and of course it's not working as we now know mm. but um i remember seeing you know commentators and people musing online about how you know this is especially some american commentators about how the invasion especially from the ukrainian side would actually somehow galvanize the international far right and mm -hmm. or especially in terms of talking about like far right foreign fighters going into ukraine and especially fighting on on the ukrainian side but what we saw and this was not surprising to me uh what we saw very early on even even as ukraine kind of formed a, a haphazard international legion and allowed foreign volunteers to come fight there were relatively few on the, on the far right that, that came and you know at most a few dozen maybe a hundred maybe more from all around the world which in the grand scheme of things in terms of what people were some people might have predicted or expected is you know a tiny drop in the bucket and and not something to to be hugely worried about but then of course on on the russian side the uh you know the those on the the more pro russian international far right i think especially um pro russian far right serbs who you know went to ukraine or were already in eastern ukraine fighting for russian forces and russian proxy forces a lot of them were literally the same people or the same kinds of people and frankly that's actually the same on both sides the mm -hmm. idea that i mean yes if you go on especially on telegram the far right uh, the, the far right social media app of choice <laughs> yeah especially as the invasion started there were some clear divisions in terms of who was supportive of ukraine and who was pro russian mm -hmm. but none of none of none of those allegiances were at all surprising they mm -hmm. were all from groups and individuals like those you know some groups and individuals that were pro ukraine and posted about azov were people that had relationships 
open relationships with them for years. Groups mm-hmm. from like Croatia, for example, or some groups from Germany, some some Poles and and other and others, like literally to the point where, you know, I could look, you know, see some some of the individuals or learn about some of the individuals or the groups that they came from who either went to fight on the Ukrainian side or, you know, help do some fundraising or some sort of soft support for maybe, maybe Azov or for just anybody on the Ukrainian side, we knew who they all were. Mm-hmm. It was, mm-hmm. it was not a surprise. And same for the Russian side, those people who posted about, you know, brother Russia needs our help or or whatever we need to denazify Ukraine, that ridiculous nonsense. You know, it was the same, the same kind of, especially Serbs and you know, some far-right Greeks, but certainly not all. And and it, it basically was, yeah, like I said, it was all the same. It was it was all predictable exactly mm-hmm. where everybody fell out. But I think what was, you know, obviously as somebody who's written about the far right in Ukraine, when I heard Putin talk about uh, denazification, quote unquote, in his uh, speech a few days before the invasion. I just kind of put my head down on my desk and like hit my head on the desk <laughs> a few times because it's just such a deliberate abuse of the word. And which, I mean, now I don't even think I can use the word anymore. It's just been poisoned. And frankly, I wasn't using it anyways. She really only applies in a historical context now. Mm-hmm. But what it, what it, what everything with the invasion and obviously everything even leading up to the invasion, what it does point to when discussing the far right in Ukraine is you know that unfortunately not very easy answer. It's complicated. Like mm. you know, I think a lot of people who you know well obviously with few exceptions, we're all observing what happens in Ukraine from afar. I think a lot of news consumers and especially in the united states they want you know perfectly 100 percent unambiguously clear heroes and villains they want mm. somebody to cheer for and it's very, it was you know very obvious who most most americans were cheering for in you know when when the invasion happened in february february and march they're they're on the side of ukraine course Mm. and but along with that sometimes there's a tendency to not allow any criticism of some of the not so nice things that can happen on 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 the right side even basically the side that's on on the side of right can still have some nefarious actors on its side it doesn't mean that side is unworthy of support that's always Mm. been my principle and that, that when people you know, watch or consume news about a war like it's a movie, they want an un- unambiguous hero and an un- unambiguous villain. Now, unfortunately, mm. Russia is, you know, keeps doing everything it can to be as villainous and stereotypically villainous as possible. But it really, it, yeah, when in for, I've essentially turned off talking online about anything to do with the far right in ukraine or russia especially on twitter for not just elon musk related reasons <laughs> but because it's just such a poison discourse you get people who you know incessantly only want to focus on the far right in ukraine and ignore the presence of the Rusich battalion on the russian side which also uses ironically some of the same neo-nazi symbols you know, like <laughs> a black sun 
Mm-hmm. And there, you know, this is a neo-Nazi military unit that's, you know, essentially you know, well, part of Russian forces right now. And, you know, has been posting about like how to how to execute Ukrainian prisoners of war and in and commit war crimes against Ukrainians. Like, yes, you can criticize there are things to be critical of on the Ukrainian side, but if you're gonna hyper focus on on one side here, you know, I think I think it's it's a misplaced priorities and then same same on the other side and i understand the motivation of of a lot of people who think this way especially in ukraine is not wanting to talk about like it kind of actually very much relates to what i was saying earlier on about not wanting to talk about things related to the far right because it'll get used for propaganda and it'll make your country look bad i think mm-hmm. ukraine ukraine is unfortunately even before the invasion but especially now the pinnacle example of that and how difficult it is to have those kinds of conversations. Now, is during this invasion the time to have those conversations? Uh, mm. Maybe not mm. so much, or at least some of them, but not to the degree that that we would have before the invasion, because, I mean, I, I wrote a book about Azov, and then the invasion happened. And it was it was a very strange thing to want to talk about some of these things, but realizing, okay, this is this is this is not this is not the time almost mm. so what in, in terms of discourse about the the far right in both ukraine and russia it's it's just such a poison discourse right now that it's it's hard it's hard especially well i think for most people it's hard to make sense of and that's why most people just just stay out of it but mm. i think yeah like i was saying i think what's important to note is that anybody who was predicting that like Ukraine would become some sort of like far right ISIS breeding ground, like it was talked about a few years ago by some American commentators. I mean, that that's complete nonsense. And mm. we always knew it would be. Mm. And uh, slowly approaching the, the wrap up of, of this episode, we, we only have one and a half of topic to, to discuss. So you've, yeah. <laughs> you've or we've both mentioned them a couple of times during this episode. Uh, I'm talking about digital platforms mm-hmm. and their role in, in, let's say, on one side, propagand- propagating the, the, the alt-right or the neo-Nazi discourse, mm-hmm. and at the same time being like this, I'm not going to say the last line of defense, but being an important part in in right. countering those those uh, those narratives, right? Yeah. So, what would you say is 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 their role in terms of of spreading and at the same time limiting the reach and influence of of extreme right in let's say yeah the European uh, the European context? I think with when it, when it comes to social media, the the key thing that these platforms need to do is actually enforce the policies that they already have on the books that mm. they either selectively or, or they, do, they don't enforce, you know, the meta, for example, you know, Facebook and Instagram, there are, you know, you, you can, if you're on the far right, you know, you can, it's not hard to get kicked off of Facebook. You know, mm-hmm. it's maybe a bit easier to stay on Instagram. But one of the, you know, because some of the research that I'm doing right now is specifically looking at the far right on Instagram and especially across a lot of non English language contexts and some in Central and Eastern Europe, but beyond that as well. 
And despite these platforms having these policies about, you know, dan- dangerous organizations, hate speech, and, and, and whatnot, there's so much that is still able to proliferate on these platforms. A part of it is because, as the far right always does, they are very good at uh, playing games with, with symbols. In other words, like not posting obvious far right symbols that even an algorithm can flag and make sure they're taken down. They're not, mm-hmm. they're not necessarily using outright hate speech, but what they are doing is using more coded symbols, using more ambiguous symbols, blurring out the symbols. But then when you flip over to telegram, the very same photo is not blurred out and you can see, you know, what's, what's behind the blurring. It's, it, this is all, I think really a concern outside of the the English language context, where mm-hmm. not just Meta, but all all sorts of platforms, Twitter, you know, YouTube, whatever, they clearly do not have the resources, the language skills, and the cultural, social knowledge, in-country knowledge, or regional knowledge, to know what they're even looking at. It's like the idea, for example, of you know a far-right fashion brand in the United States or in Germany or, you know, some other, or especially maybe an English language context, a far right fashion brand being able to sell its clothes and make money and brand itself on Facebook is maybe not quite unthinkable. It's too strong a word, but uh, you know, I'm, I'd be much more surprised to see that, but I'm Mm -hmm. aware of central and Eastern European far right fashion brands that, do all their stuff through Facebook and Instagram. And it doesn't take that much insight. It doesn't take that much research to figure out that they're far-right extremists. It doesn't take too much insight to figure out when they put HH in their, uh, you know, in their, on their clothes and stuff that it's, it's shorthand, same with number codes and things like that. Mm. The, the, the key here is not to, you know, not to somehow expect platforms or even want platforms to, you know, police to, to you know club club every slightly, you know, basically suppress free speech entirety entirely, mm-hmm. and it's in its entirety. So that's the phrase I was looking for. <laughs> it key, like I said, is just to enforce what they have on the books. It's not to, you know, ban. It's not just to ban ban somebody when they promote a terror attack or do something too obvious it's to be proactive and to notice oh this is a renamed page affiliated with a known far-right group here's their telegram channel that they're linking to that has this stuff much more open and extreme and so Mm. even when it comes to these mainstream platforms i really actually especially think of instagram that is a place where there's much more far-right extremist networking, even even sales, promotion, propaganda. There's much more that goes on in that platform than I think people realize. And then with more emerging platforms like TikTok, I fully and publicly confess that I do not pay enough attention to TikTok. I was saying this actually in a training last week <laughs> to the people that we were training. I was like, I need to start really doing some of this more with TikTok. Mm. And that's also an app where, you know, there are these policies, but, you know, you you go on TikTok and you can quickly find all sorts of far-right extremist content if you're, the algorithm leads you the wrong way. 
Mm. And then these are those are the more mainstream platforms. We haven't I haven't re- even really talked about Telegram yet, mm. which is the platform still that so much of the far right relies on. Now to get kicked off of Telegram is not you know I've seen a, I mean I follow hundreds of far right channels from all sorts of different countries and chat groups and things like that. Very few of them have ever been banned from Telegram, very few. And those are the most extreme ones. The vast majority, even if they're, you know, like they're, for example, far-right pan-European football hooligan channels that post uh, all sorts of swastikas and Hitler salutes and hate speech against every single minority possible. Telegram doesn't care. Telegram doesn't care that, uh, you know, extremists like uh, the so-called male state from Russia led by uh, Vladislav Poznyakov, like they, they don't care that, that this individual and this kind of misogynistic network around them keeps using Telegram to voice this, you know, this sort of blackmailing misogynist ideology onto Russian young men. They don't care about that. Mm. So, it, no. so it, where it's a, the only avenue for some success is the fact that sometimes Google, the Google Play Store and Apple through the App Store, that sometimes they make some channels inaccessible on apps downloaded from those stores. But there's a very easy get around to that, which you know the far right knows it too, which is mm. just to download the app directly from the website and you get around all this stuff. Mm. So, but even even so, I've seen channels that get banned from Google or Apple, they actually do see some reduction in growth. They flatline or they even lose followers. And mm. when you actually hear some of these people on the far right post or talk a bit more uh, candidly about how they feel, they, they they talk about things like, oh, imagine if we were still on YouTube. Oh, imagine if, you know, you know, or they say things like that. They the fact that they get so mad about getting deep platform from YouTube or Facebook or wherever else, the fact that they get so mad about it should tell you a lot. Mm. But so, so judging from those comments, one could deduce that, that uh, the platforms are important because of no, absolutely. Yeah. algorithmic yeah. content distribution, but also yeah. uh, w- w- one question that, that, came to my mind as I was listening to you is basically, so would you say that platforms are more important for, uh, I hate the term, onboarding new members of the neo-Nazi community? Or would you say that they're more of a, they're more of a, let's say, team building or maintaining the, the uh, maintaining the loyalty of, of already onboarded, uh, onboarded members? Oh, it's so would you, the, It's so yeah. fundamentally important to the far right now, the be, being online, being on these platforms, whichever mm-hmm. platforms they are, it's it's fundamentally important to them. And it's not just an appendage of what they do. It's fundamental and it's at the core of what they do. And you know, I think if if people want to try to divide the online world and the offline worlds into separate worlds, I really think that's you know, as, as, as time goes on, that's not really the best way to think about the world. And it applies to the far right as well, where so, so much of some of their activities are focused on the online to the point where, 
when some when they do have offline activities, pro, protests, events, things like that, they were almost staged for the purposes of being broadcast online. Mm. So the in, in this day and age, the the platforms, whichever platforms they are, they're absolutely fundamental to the far right in ways that obviously they they weren't in the past and one of the you know when you see individual or you know far right fortunes rise and fall whether individuals or small groups or whatever when they rise and fall a lot of it is is because of you know having access to platforms and then being denied a platform it has a real impact and they know that so that's the one thing I would stress to people listening is not to, to treat what the far right does online as something separate or something additional to, to its offline work. The core of what it does is it, it lives online. Mm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And, and finally, just a few words about, like if you're an upstanding citizen, you know, listening to this podcast, reading your your work, worrying about the the the, the rise of, of extreme right in, in your own country, are there some bullet points or are there some let's say activities that you as a as a citizen, as a as a consumer, as as a political animal, is there something you can do in your local environment, regional environment to sort of counter the counter the the push we've we've mentioned before that nor that tries to normalize the discourse right. that promotes these ideas and so forth. I think yeah it it doing the, the best thing to do, I would say is to do what you can to push back against that that creeping normalization. And I think that can extend to in your in your city center or town or wherever when when there is say a, a far right sticker or something offensive like that that's been pasted up you know you don't have to be a graffiti artist i am not but you can just pull it down you can rip it off i've done that and actually recently not with a you know far right stickers but with you know i've seen an anti-vax one you know at a bus stop somewhere i won't say in what city and it's like no i don't i mean I, I try to be relatively neutral, but it's like, you know, I'll say like, no, I don't want that. I, I don't want this, this, this sticker saying that, you know, the vaccine is killing people. No, I'm, I, it was, I'm, I'm ripping that down. Or if there's cases of graffiti, you know, or I mean, not, I mean, not just any graffiti. I mean, let's be honest, Gra- graffiti period is, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a feature of, I think all of our, all of the walls and all of the cities that we live in, you know, some more than others. But if there's, if, if there's new far right, hateful graffiti symbols, are there relevant authorities to go to rate? Can you help, you know, even as an individual raise a fuss, if on a, you know, if, if on some wall in Ljubljana, there's, you know, there's, there's some, you know, anti-LGBT or anti-migrant, a hateful slogan with with symbols painted up. Like, can you even bringing awareness to it? Can you can you post about it on social media to try to bring bring attention to it to authorities to help to help get rid of it? Even mm. even things like that 
help push back against that kind of normalization. And if you're active on social media on whether it's, you know, on whether it's Facebook or Twitter or other places, if you're the kind of person that, that likes arguing with people online, I'm not really like that. I think I used to be, but sometimes, you know, if, if there's far right people in comments, you know, push back and, and let them know that they're, they are, that they are, you know, they're, they're not winning. Mm. <laughs> they're the, the, the key. If, if it came down to any key principle for me, it would just don't, don't be apathetic. Don't be, you know, don't sit back and think, Oh, well, this, who cares about that piece of graffiti? Who cares about that sticker? Oh, who cares about, you know, this, this flyer for this, this, this neo-Nazi hardcore concert or, or anything like that. I think once ap apathy has set in a lot, you know, amongst a lot of people, a lot of politicians, a lot of leaders, and I think it's incumbent to, for us, to all of us as citizens to not be apathetic. No, we can't be active 24 seven. We all have lives. We all have jobs. And, you know, we are all only are one person with so much energy but it if if you want to make the the world a better place or stop peeps if you want to stop people from making the world a worse place well you you have to do something and even some of those smallest steps actually can add up over time and make a difference hmm. i think that's the the perfect statement to to wrap up this discussion we we try really hard to uh, end on a positive note and i think <laughs> Uh, I, 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 I generally try to think, even if I'm pessimistic about <laughs> some things, I'm never going to be the kind of person that says, I give up. No, don't don't do that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Michael, for, for Thank dropping you, by. Uh, keep, on, keep on writing and keep on researching. Oh, uh, I'm, this... I, oh trust me, I've, I've, I've been busy. So uh, more <laughs> Excellent. And uh, uh, looking forward to, yeah, meeting you again, maybe when, uh, you know, you're not, not going to come on a, on a work assignment, but maybe on, yeah, food and drinks and stuff. Uh, uh, like, yeah, uh, like uh, we beer, mentioned before. Uh, a beer drinking yes. assignment. I think I can do that. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Take All care. Right. Uh, this has been uh, Citizen D. Uh, we'll uh, hear each other or listen to us on the um, on our website in 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 the in the podcast store. We publish every month. We try to be um, we try to be uh, up to date and and current. And we're investigating or we're focusing on the intersection of of technology and. Uh, I guess you could say social science in, in the broadest of scopes. Thank you so much, Michael, again. Thank and you. we'll hear each other next month.